I just want to jump in really quickly to ask a very important favour. We know that most of you who listen to No Bullshit Leadership haven't yet hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite podcast player. This is how the podcast grows. And even though we've already got a pretty decent global following, we're only scratching the surface of what's possible. We started this podcast over five years ago with the lofty ambition of improving the quality of leaders globally. So if you've got any benefit at all from listening to the podcast, I'd ask you to just take a moment, literally a moment, to hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite player. The world needs more no-bullshit leaders, and you can help us to make that happen. Back to the episode. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership, or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 81 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Jack's Legacy, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Today I'm changing normal programming a little due to a recent event that I really thought worth pausing to comment on. And no, it's not the COVID-19 virus sweeping the planet. On the 1st of March, we heard the news that Jack Welsh had passed away at the age of 84 from renal failure. Jack was the chief executive and chairman of General Electric for over 20 years, through the heady 1980s and 90s, before a recession in 2001, and the GFC in 2008 curbed everyone's enthusiasm. Welsh is widely credited with transforming American capitalism, and that comment's made by both supporters and detractors. 
He was named the Manager of the Century by Fortune magazine in 1999, beating out some pretty stellar competition from earlier in the 20th century. Since then, a lot of what Welsh did has been discredited or at least frowned upon. So I want to look at the legacy that is Jack Welsh from my vantage point as a person who never met him and never worked for GE, but have nonetheless read quite a deal about him over the years, including his autobiography, which he released in 2001. So we'll start with a little bit of background. Who was Jack Welsh and what did he do at GE? I'll briefly explore why he may have fallen from grace. I'll then drill down on one of his core strategies for creating a high-performing organisation and ask, does 2070-10 really work? And I'll finish with my verdict on Jack. So let's get into it. Jack Welsh joined GE in 1960 as a 24-year-old. He was fresh from a PhD program as a chemical engineer. And interestingly, he worked for that one company all his life, which in itself is remarkable these days. It would be virtually unthinkable for the young adults being produced by our universities, colleges and apprenticeship programs today to think that they could work for the one company for their whole careers. GE itself was started in 1892 in Boston by five founders, including luminary names such as Thomas Edison, if you'll pardon the pun, and J.P. Morgan. The company turns 128 next month. Welsh became chief executive and chairman of GE in 1980 until his retirement in 2001. He had a massive focus on growth and profitability. He's commonly thought of to have changed corporate America. Some say for the worse, not for the better though. He paid brutal attention to the bottom line. He took out over 100,000 people from the GE workforce between 1980 and 1985. That's just over one quarter of the global workforce. And it wasn't really a distressed business. He'd just seen the inefficiencies and sclerosis that were stopping the organisation from being its best. Welsh had a massive focus on shareholder returns and the enrichment of those performers at the top end of the company who produced the returns. The capitalist concept of aligning the interests of owners and managers was really fleshed out strongly in GE. These days, it is the incentives put in place to reward management for creating shareholder value that result in some of the obscene CEO payments that we read about in the press. Under Welsh, GE's strategy was to put the C into conglomerate. He took a stodgy industrial firm and diversified it into media, finance and high tech, just to name a few. GE was, and probably still is, ubiquitous. Every single one of you listening to this podcast has used GE products, whether you know it or not. So have a look at the branding on the jet engine of the next plane you sit in. And it's worth remembering that GE manufactures everything from turbines in power stations that generate the electricity you use, through to the high-performing plastics used in many high-quality products. But GE under Welsh became America's largest company at one point, and its performance was stunning. It's as American as Boeing. Under Welsh, it went from revenue of $25 billion to $130 billion. The profit went from $1.5 billion to $15 billion. Now, that's a compound annual growth rate of 12% over 20 years, every year growing by 12%. That's better than the Chinese economy. And it had a market cap of $400 billion at its peak. Now, Welsh was famous for a few headline strategies. The first of these was, be number one or number two in your market, or be shut down. 
and the other strategy was to rip apart the concrete layer of bureaucracy that sat in the middle of the organisation. He did this with his 20-70-10 methodology. Now, this is not to be confused with 70-20-10, the learning methodology that says 70% of your learning comes from on-the-job experience, 20% comes from coaching and mentoring from your leaders, and 10% comes from formalised education courses. 20-70-10 was how you divided up the workforce to understand who was to be nurtured and who wasn't. So, 20% represented the top 20% of the workforce. Those are the people that you love, you promote, you give the opportunities to, you develop, you pay. Those are the ones who are the top of the organisation. The 70% is the middle part of the organisation that is the essential rump that gets the work done. They're important. But the bottom 10% has to be turned over every single year. So if you find yourself in the bottom 10%, then of course you are going to be ruthlessly exited from the organisation. It really creates an every person for themselves culture. And mass layoffs tend to change the psychological contract that our company has with its workforce. So from loyal employees with a job for life to a mood of carve your own destiny. Now, Welsh said in his autobiography that the only thing that provides job security is satisfied customers. Companies can't give you that, which I guess to an extent is true, but it's a pretty brutal way of looking at it. Another one of Welsh's key innovations was to introduce Six Sigma later in his tenure as a means of improving the many manufacturing processes throughout GE. And for those of you who don't know about Six Sigma, it's basically just a process to reduce the number of defects in any manufacturing or service operation. Now, some of the clues on Welsh's philosophy come from the man himself. And I have to say that many of these are not only reasonable, but they're ultimately quite desirable. So from day one in GE as a graduate engineer, Welsh went above and beyond in delivering work. And this is what fueled his meteoric rise. He clearly held the tenet of excellence over perfection, and he strived to create a safe environment in which excellence was rewarded. So he used to say, and I quote from his autobiography, everyone knew that having a big swing and missing was okay. So he encouraged innovation. He held really strong views on the ability of people's potential to be nurtured in the GE environment. So he believed that a person's only limitation to progression should be their own creativity, drive, and standard of personal excellence. He strongly held the principle that rigorous differentiation delivers real stars. And you know what? I think he's right about that. This, in turn, enables us to form winning teams. Welsh was driven by a desire to continually raise the performance bar to seek improvement and create greater value. But when good people make mistakes, they don't need to be crucified. They need to learn. On the downside, I wouldn't be looking to Welsh as a role model for life balance. He had two heart attacks and was a self-professed workaholic. Why the fall from grace then? Well, I've got to boil down to about half a dozen things. The first thing is the corporate excess. Welsh paid lavish bonuses and made sure that the executives at the top of the organisation really shared the wealth that was created for the shareholders. Now, this is how most CEOs make the really big bucks. They don't make it in their fixed salary. They make it in their non-fixed remuneration that is tied to long-term performance. So what they normally do is they take the performance of the organisation and compare it to other organisations in the same industries, and they compare their total shareholder returns and things like their price-to-earnings ratios. Over a long period of time, if the company performs well, then management is rewarded royally. Even post-retirement, it was rumoured that Welsh had some opulent benefits that GE picked up the tab for. 
Now, that's not a good look for someone who was chairman and CEO who basically controlled the board. The second criticism revolves around what a lot of people call inhumane methods. Now, obviously, Welsh made massive cuts in the workforce on a scale not before seen in corporate America. But he did this while profitability was still growing massively and business units were cut as if it was life or death. Now, this might be okay if it was positioning GE for the long term, but was it? A little bit more on this in a minute. Leaving aside the perception that comes from ruthless efficiency for those who remained, he was reputedly a very good leader. Now, those who were close to Jack said he was a genius at identifying and nurturing talent. He encouraged people to take risks and speak their minds, and the push to meritocracy was extreme. The third reason he had a fall from grace is that critics contended that market innovation was stifled with the drive for Six Sigma. This is pretty interesting. A key tenet of Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma is that rational investment behaviour by managers leads to underinvestment in the next wave of products and services, thereby stifling innovation. So by his own admission, Welsh was slow to see the potential of the internet, for example, and largely missed that boat. The fourth thing is he used some old tricks to prop up the balance sheet, uh, things like mass outsourcing of certain functions. Now, this may have improved the performance in the short term, but possibly at the expense of long-term control and the intellectual property of the organisation. Another widely held criticism is that the massive growth in some areas of the conglomerate distracted from the declining performance in the traditional businesses. So in other words, these fast-growth businesses like GE Finance mask the decline in their other manufacturing businesses. Now finally, and most compelling, the performance after Welsh retired fell off a cliff. GE is not the powerhouse it used to be. So the share price peaked on Welsh's departure at around $60 US per share. But at the close of trading last week, it was $9.40. In fact, in June 2018, GE was delisted from the Dow Jones Industrial Index. And this was the last of the companies founded in or before 1907 to do so. This was because its value, or market capitalisation, was less than 10% of the index's most valuable stock. Now, ironically, the most valuable stock at the time when GE was delisted was Boeing, but that's a whole other story. Boeing shares at that time were priced around $400, but today they've lost about a third of their value to be trading at around $260 per share. It's absolutely true. Today's rooster is tomorrow's feather duster. So the long-term picture for GE is less than rosy. And let's just say that Welsh's successor, Jeff Immelt, won't have his name on the chalkboard when Fortune magazine contemplates the candidates for Manager of the Century in 2099. But look, let's put this in context. You've probably all heard of, if not read, the classic book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Now, if you have a copy, just slip into the early part of the book on page 7 and have a look at the companies upon which that research was based and see where they are now. No one is saying the conclusions in that book aren't valid, not even Phil Rosenzweig, who provided another perspective in his outstanding book, The Halo Effect. However, many of the companies lauded in that piece of research are now, or have been, financially distressed. Which, in my mind, goes to the point that things change and businesses and industries go in cycles. That's why most companies that manage to create a competitive advantage come back to the pack within two to seven years. It's worth us asking the question, does the 2070-10 methodology work? Because this was really central to Jack's view of how he was going to improve the capability and performance of the workforce. 
I talk a lot about high-performing teams and the techniques for improving team performance. Now, some of the things I say might sound a little ruthless to those who are a little more on the soft and fluffy side of leadership, for example. So if you've become really good at rationalising why you need to keep people happy and to make sure they like you, you'll find a lot of my content quite jarring. And if you subscribe philosophically to the principle that everyone is welcome, everyone is looked after and everyone has a place, regardless of their personal choices around behaviour and performance, then you'll likely be at odds even with many of my views. But those of you who know me have probably worked out that I'm not really in this camp. Having said that, I still see a few major issues with the way Welsh implemented his 2070-10 methodology. I really strongly believe that meritocracy is the only way to run a team or an organisation, regardless of your industry sector or purpose. We are where we are with diversity and inclusion, largely because of the lack of meritocracy over past generations. But the blanket application of meritocracy is trickier in practice than it might seem. In my experience, forced rankings don't really work. It's counterproductive to producing the best outcome. Now let me give you an example. Having every team, division and business unit independently having to identify a bottom 10% who will then be unceremoniously purged from the workforce doesn't factor in the differences between teams. So team A might be truly awesome and team B might be a little shit. But the bottom 10% of team A might well fit into the middle 70% or even, in many cases, the top 20% of team B. But applying the blanket rule to each team at the most granular level doesn't account for this. I also had a conversation many years ago with one of my early influences in my executive career, a very wise and seasoned executive named Thras Maritis. Thras was a founder of one of the large global consulting firms, particularly predominant in Europe. And he told me that at one point in time, they had decided to implement that 2070-10 methodology of GE. What he said was, it worked really well for the first couple of years, and they really managed to get an uplift in workforce average capability and performance. But he said, by year three, weird things were happening. He'd have a look at the lists of the people who were to be exited from the organisation because they turned up in the bottom 10%, and thought to himself, hang on a minute, I know this person, that's actually a pretty good person. So what happens pretty quickly is that you start to lose some very, very good people and that is not good for morale. Let's wrap this up. What's my verdict on Jack Welsh? Well, I've always said there's a lot of luck and timing in this CEO caper. And Welsh did manage his timing impeccably. He stepped away from GE just before the 2001 recession. But over 20 years worth of timing? I don't know, I doubt that. There's no question in my mind that he uplifted performance massively. And timing aside, he can't be blamed for the way the 2008 GFC hit General Electric. Welsh clearly had the wind at his back through unprecedented stock market growth in the 1980s and 90s. But GE still massively outperformed this growth. GE rose 70-fold in 20 years, which was more than three times as fast as the S&P 500 index. He clearly got results all the way through his career, starting as a chemical engineer. He had a PhD and he did the work. That's why before the age of 40, he was running a collection of GE's businesses with over $2 billion in sales. Jack actually did focus on people. Stories from him and the people close to him bear out that he was a great leader to be close to. In other words, if you were a high performer, you did really, really well under Jack Welsh. If you weren't a high performer, maybe not so much. 
But Welsh says in his autobiography that he never changed who he was. Sure, he was brash, outspoken, and he was driven to perform. But he clearly had his leadership fingerprint sorted out. He knew who he was, and he went with that. There are some questions too around the chairman and CEO model. Is that too little governance over someone who's driving an organisation that large? And does this model make a difference as to how GE performed over its time? Would additional governance have forced any changes at all to what was done? We don't know. I suspect that history will treat Jack Welsh rather more harshly than may be warranted. Over the years, for my part, I managed to adapt a number of his philosophies and tempered them to seek a better balance of outright performance with constructive culture. But there's no denying the impact Jack Welsh had, and his legacy touches all of us in some way. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 81. Thanks so much for joining us, and remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please take a few moments and rate and review the podcast, because this is how we reach even more leaders. I look forward to next week's episode. Being right isn't everything. And next week, I actually will do that episode. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>